And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Hello and welcome back to Power Hour, a weekly show hosted by me, Nicole Auerbach. I am joined today, as always, for our college football shows by the athletic senior writer, Chris Vanini. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on the Andy Staples Show and Friends feed. Andy and Ari, of course, always have something cooking in the offseason, and we even have college basketball shows over the next couple of weeks. We'll go through the final four with college hoops shows, but we are in a college football episode right now. And on today's episode of Power Hour, we'll break down everything you need to know in college football in an hour or less. So, Chris, let's dive in. And first of all, happy late March spring football sweet 16 weekend to you. Yes, it is peak March Madness here. Uh, we're both enjoying the basketball. You're enjoying a little bit of a vacation, and but there's there's always there's still football stuff to talk about. College sports is year round, and we've got a lot to to talk about on the show. Yes, we do. Um, and we're going to start as we always do with the Power Five in true Power Hour fashion. We give ourselves a minute ish, and I lean heavily on the ish there to cover one of the hottest topics in the sport before the buzzer sounds. And it's time to move on to the next Chris, you take it away. Yeah. We never really adhere to that one minute thing, I guess, but uh... it's just an idea. It's, it's like it, it then parallels like a true power hour, even though like this isn't a five minute show. So I think yes, it's okay. Yes. yes. Number one, Notre Dame athletic director, Jack Swarbrick and uh, the school's president, Reverend John Jenkins penned an op-ed in the New York Times on Thursday, uh, basically uh, asking Congress and, and other parties to help fix college sports uh, among the, the the issues on top of all the NIL stuff uh, that we know of. They, they've asked for a limit on days away from campus for players, a national medical trust, uh, allowing players who go pro to return for their degree, but also asking that Congress determine that athletes are not employees and this is timely because obviously the NCAA tournament is going on, but also there are a number of lawsuits uh, in the pipe this year that could come up that could really just kind of impact uh, that that status for athletes. Um, we will get more into this later in the show, but Nicole, we both uh, woke up on Thursday morning and, and saw this and were kind of surprised by it. Yeah, although I will say that Jack Swarbrick did do kind of a similar media blitz last summer if you remember he made comments about super conferences and like the pack uh sorry the big 10 and the sec pulling away from everyone else like he has said he is his 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 stances on kind of the state of college sports um do tend to become widely known i mean he talked about football breaking away and the dynamic between football and the rest of the sports last year and then that became a conversation that a lot of us had and a lot of other IADs and commissioners ended up weighing in on. So not surprised that we are hearing from him and that he is trying to stake out a claim here that uh, that student athletes 
should be a separate characterization from employees. And I know we'll get into that uh, later in the show, but it, it it is noteworthy and it is interesting some of the language that he was using and some of those points that he is staking out. Number two of the Power Five, the latest on the Pac-12. We're still waiting for a media rights deal. We're waiting to see what the what the partners are, what the streaming percentage is, what the money looks like. And we're still waiting. That is the main takeaway as we record this on Thursday, March 23rd. Utah's president, Taylor Randall, spoke to ESPN 700 in Salt Lake City this week and said, quote, I think we're in a good spot. I like what I'm hearing coming out of our commissioner's office where the negotiations are. Got a ways to go, but I think you've got some solidarity with the remaining schools and the president's room in particular. I don't think we see a dire scenario. So now we have heard from Three of the the corner four corner schools, Arizona, Arizona State, and Utah's presidents over the last week, week and a half. Chris, what do you make of the public nature of these comments from presidents and saying that there is solidarity with the remaining Pac-12 schools? Yeah, it's funny. I wrote up a little thing about this uh, these comments on the Athletic, and then that same radio station invited me to come on and talk about it, and ask me these same questions because everybody wants to know about all this kind of stuff. It is, it, it, you know, we said it. I think last week, you know, when Arizona Arizona State presidents came out and said similar things. Uh, largely, I just I just have the question of why now? Is it because they're sick and tired of the Big Twelve shaping the narrative and they just want to squash that? Uh, is it a warning sign to George Klyovkov to hurry up and get this done is it just individually they're they're doing their own things N- not not quite sure ultimately as has always been the case nothing is going to happen until we get the the TV deal details uh, presented to them and that hasn't really happened yet and nobody really knows what it will be yet i thought it was notable here that Randall the president of Utah said we've still got a ways to go uh, this has been pushed back and back and back when People thought this would be resolved. And that kind of sounded like we may still have a ways to go before this resolved still. Yeah, it definitely does make it seem like this is a matter of weeks, not days or hours. And to your point, I remember hearing about a Thanksgiving time frame. Then it was end of the year. Then it was January. And now here we are in late March on the eve of the final four on the eve of April. Um, which again, someone made this point, but like this, the timeline wouldn't be that much of an issue in a normal negotiating process. But because the Big 12 jumped the line and got their extension done so quickly, you feel this extra pressure. Um, right. But but again, this is the step that we need to happen next. As then the Pac-12 would mull expansion, as then the Big 12 would mull to see if they could get any of the four corner schools or anybody to bite, right? You need to know what you're working with, and that's the part that we still don't have from the Pac-12. And, and as for that pressure, the longer it drags on, the concern would be the longer it drags on, there's that's more opportunity, more time for someone to jump ship to the Big 12. But the fact that we've had three of the four corner schools say that they're not going to do that, I do think that alleviates some of that timeline pressure that they're, that we don't, none of them are going to jump yet. So they, they're also signaling like, Hey, we've got some time here. Number three, Jimbo Fisher uh, finally asked and talked about the play calling at Texas A&M. Well, kind of, uh, he had his first spring practice news conference this week 
And before the first question could even be finished, uh, when he was asked about a difference in the offense, Jimbo uh, jumped in right away and said, quote, we ain't worried about, look, here's what we're doing. Uh, we're running our thing. We're going to be base fundamentals. We ain't getting into scheme. We ain't getting into anything. That's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to practice. And that's what we're going to do on a daily basis. Uh, later, he was asked who would call the plays. And he says, I mean, we'll go through that as we go. But then jumping back in and saying, plan on him making calls, plan on him calling plays. I have no problem with that at all. So not a clean start to the Jimbo Fisher, Bobby Petrino era from a PR perspective. Uh, Nicole, do you think uh, Bob, Bobby Petrino really is calling the plays? And uh, is Jimbo Fisher just having a hard time saying that? Well, this was the big question at the end of last season was, was Jimbo going to actually make a change, hire an offensive coordinator and let somebody else call the plays? Like this is the change that AM needs to have happen. It's also the million dollar question. Well, multi probably more than a million dollar question here. Almost $80 million dollars or something like that at this point. Yeah. yeah something. I, I don't know the latest in the buyout figure of the guaranteed money, but it, it's, such an important question and we have this question about a couple different places like I'm curious you know if Ryan Day is gonna call plays uh, continue to call plays at Ohio State like you get some inkling and some information out of spring ball but yeah until we see it it's going to be asked and especially when you get a very vague answer like that and I and I get it because I don't think Jimbo Fisher loves the idea of not calling the plays like that is no. very apparent right that's part of the reason this has never happened sooner so this is going to be awkward and uncomfortable. And you are going to have someone who's very used to doing things a certain way, standing over your shoulders the whole time. I, how are you not ready for this? Well, question? that's also, a, that's a great <laughs> like, point as well. This was always going to be the very first thing you were asked. How do you not have like, you nailed down what you're going to say, how you're going to explain how this offense is working. Instead, he didn't want to answer. Then he kind of did. Then he stopped and he jumps in at the next question. And uh, he ended with plan on him making calls, plan on him calling the plays. So maybe that was like him working out, admitting it, or maybe, maybe. not. I guess we'll see. But that was not, not, the, not the best start to this pairing, I guess. Okay, number four of the Power Five, Michigan adds four-star running back Jordan Mitchell out of Cincinnati over Ohio State. Now, three of Michigan's eight commits are from the state of Ohio. And for the first time since 2013, Michigan jumped into Ohio and took an elite level player with a Buckeyes offer. That is a stat per Ari Wasserman, who obviously tracks this stuff very closely. Um, I think it's very interesting that this has become a focal point for Michigan. If you think about some of the best teams in Michigan Wolverine history, you think of Ohio players like this is a big deal in this rivalry when you pluck a kid out of the other states. Obviously, Ohio has a ton of talent and is part of the reason that Ohio State has traditionally always been good getting Ohio kids. But Chris, what do you make of this? Do you think this is notable a shift? Do you think it's a reflection of Michigan making the playoff the last two years? Like how, how much of a deal should we make out of this? Do you know where Charles Woodson is from? He's from Ohio. Do you know where Desmond Howard is from? He's from Ohio. Like the best Michigan teams have been built on getting some of the best players out of Ohio. And basically since Urban Meyer took over, Michigan has not been able to get the best players out of Ohio. They've gotten players out of Ohio. They've gotten some players who have turned out to be pretty good players, 
But in terms of beating Ohio State in recruiting for those top-level players, has not happened. And so you have this commit now out of Cincinnati, guy with an Ohio State offer, on top of Michigan making two straight playoffs, on top of beating Ohio State two years in a row, it's another signal of Michigan continuing to turn the tide in the Ohio State rivalry. Now, Michigan's recruiting overall, you can have questions about in terms of uh, if they're signing enough top 100 players and whatnot. But when it comes to the dynamics of Michigan and Ohio State in the state of Ohio, this feels like a pretty big step for Jim Harbaugh and the program as they uh, try to make more inroads in a, in a state that has fueled that program. Yeah, and one last thought on this. Um, we, we also have been kind of waiting to see a recruiting impact for making the playoff. I think that was something last offseason that was a talking point. And certainly Jim Harbaugh was, you know, flirting with going back to the NFL and that was the Minnesota Vikings offseason. So people weren't necessarily sure, you know, if that had something to do with it. But people have been waiting to see an uptick in recruiting or at least an effect, right, of, of having made two college football playoffs. And so this could be one of those effects, cause and effect. Cause, you make the two playoffs, effect, you're more effective in the state of Ohio. Right. I mean, Michigan, their 2023 class – uh, zero five-star players, number 17th overall behind South Carolina, behind Penn State. Uh, so like overall recruiting is they haven't quite got that jump yet. Maybe that'll start to happen with, uh, with 2024. We'll see. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Number five, uh, Alabama defensive back Tony Mitchell suspended from all team activities uh, after a marijuana charge in Florida. But more notably, AL.com acquired the police report that said that uh, he initially fleed uh, from police and was was tagged doing 141 miles per hour at one point. Um, And I just thought between this situation, between you know, some situations at Georgia regarding speeding and and racing and something that led to the death of two people in the program. Uh, Cars and speeding just kind of coming to the forefront here in college football, college sports. And I just kind of wanted to bring that up and mention, I mean, like we both covered college athletes in school. I've gone to the courthouse and you pull up, you look up players to see what's there. And there's a lot of speeding tickets and stuff like that. Um, So it's not unusual, but racing these kinds of speeds. I mean, thank God there was not another tragedy in this situation. Yeah. Yeah. And also notable in in the the aftermath of this was, you know, Nick Saban's comments about it and, and suspending him was the comment that really echoed Nate Oates and that players are not players don't just happen to be in the wrong place at the right wrong time. And 
there has been a little bit of fallout. There was a photo of Nick Saban at the basketball practice, wishing the basketball team good luck as they head out to the Sweet 16. He's been asked about this a little bit. He said it's about his program and how they do things, but there's no other way to to see that without him taking a shot at the basketball program, I think, as at least. Um, and obviously the fact that they did not suspend anyone, <clears throat> Brandon Miller, involved in the murder uh, investigation. And so I also applaud Nick Saban for making that point and actually underscoring that in the aftermath of this, especially once we got the details. Yes. And to be fair to Alabama, they did kick off one of the players who was involved in the shooting uh, as well. But the one you know, who Nick was Saban, charged. Yes. The one who was charged. Nick Saban said it had nothing to do with it. And it was just it's a phrase. Believe him. You can or can't. I don't know. But just the larger issue of like, I mean, like Kirby Smart was asked about drag racing specifically by ESPN and in that type of issue. show. just like you would have you would think that the Georgia situation and a high profile situation where two people died uh, would maybe wake some players and people up to the dangers of speeding at such high speeds. Um, but yeah, could, this could have been a whole lot worse. Yeah, it, it could have. Um, and, and I think that's a really good point. Uh, we don't enjoy covering these types of things and it's been a rough stretch here for, for news off the field and, and off the court in college sports. Um, so it's time to try to flip this over to happy hour and look for things that make us happy about the college football landscape. And it's funny that, you know, Chris wants us to talk about the teams that when they're good, college football is better. And we have this conversation all the time and we're having it actually with college basketball right now, as we look at the sweet 16, because there aren't, you know, as many blue bloods, right? You still have UCLA, you still have Michigan state, but you don't have Kentucky or Duke or North Carolina. You don't have some of these teams that we're so used to seeing on that stage and have so much rich history in that sport. And it's like, well, is this, are the upsets and not having those teams that good for college basketball? Well, we have the same conversations on the football side all of the time. And we do have them when we say like, college football is better when Michigan is good and when Texas is back and all of these schools. So Chris, I know you want to pose the question as this, when you can't say that it's your team, what team being good makes college football better? And I know you stole this idea from a, a Texas fan on Reddit who picked Nebraska. So give me some teams that you would say that about that you're not personally invested in. Yeah, look, there were not a lot of topics to news topics to get into this week. So I, uh, decided to look for some, and this was a good one I found on College Football Reddit. It was basically like, other than your team, what, 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 like, what, what's a team you think College Football is better when when they're good? And we we kind of saw this last year. Tennessee was kind of back. USC kind of back. Uh, to me, the school that sticks out more than any other as when that team is good, elite level, like top five program, it helps all of College Football. To me, that program is USC because. College football is not a big city sport. It doesn't have much of a presence in, in New York City. Sorry to Rutgers and sorry to Jim Delaney. It doesn't have a big presence in Chicago. Apologies to Northwestern. But when USC in the mid-2000s under Pete Carroll was like winning national championships, they were everywhere they were superstars you had snoop dog coming to practices you had will ferrell when he was the biggest thing in the world coming to practices when usc was at the top college football just felt bigger i think to a lot of people to me it broke into mainstream culture 
And, and and so when I think of like what's a school that makes college football better when they're when they're big, I start with USC. What about you? I think that's a really good one because it's why we talk about like the value of regional balance, why it matters that the Pac-12 makes the college football playoff. Like it's about getting that market, but also that part of the country involved yes. and engaged because this has always been such a regional sport. And it's trying to go national, right? And so that that piece does matter. Um, I, I mean, I think, you know, the obvious ones make a lot of sense. Like Texas is similar as well. It's just when they're good, they take over. They dominate news cycles. They become the biggest thing that you talk about. And it, it's the, it's star power. It's, it's the whole just the Texas roots and the culture and all of that. There's just certain places that it's there, right? There's just like a swagger when, when they're back. And there's a reason, you know, that we always think, you know, Texas should be getting the best quarterbacks should be getting the best coaches and, and they commit the the most resources to these things and they should be there. So I, I think that's one. I, I really also think the, the fact that Nebraska has been down has been felt across college football, right? Like I, I think, the idea of conference realignment and, and trying to kind of find your new, your own way in a new league. And then also trying to, you know, establish rivalries, but also what happened to your recruiting in Texas. Some of the things we've talked about since they hired Matt rule and his relationships with high school players in coaches in Texas, maybe that fixes some of that, but like the fact that Nebraska has been so far down that they're not even making bowl games, that has definitely been one that is, I think, just very notable. It has such a, a devoted fan base and the crowds and the history and the pride and tradition. Like That has been really tough to, to witness from afar with no rooting interest there. I do wonder, like Nebraska nowadays does not mean at all to kids what it did to us because they don't remember when Nebraska was an elite team. But if, like, if Nebraska got back to being a top five team, competing for the playoff or something like that. I do wonder what their reaction would be. Would you, would you have a lot more fans, lapsed fans, fans from the nineties who come back in, who, who are paying more attention to the sport uh, after that? That is, that is an interesting one. I, do, I don't know if we'll ever get back there, uh, but it, it is an interesting one. And my, my USC point, you made a good point about the regional aspect of it. I do wonder USC going to the big 10, does that change that? If USC is bad, I, I, but it's I Big think, Ten, it'll it'll, it'll I, feel it'll feel different. I don't think I don't think so because it's still based where it's based. Yes, like some of the bigger games will be played in Columbus or Ann Arbor, right? They'll mm -hmm. be in different places, but you're still getting home games. And when USC is good, you mentioned like just the star power that comes with it that still exists because it's mm -hmm. still in LA. It's still it's still one of those places. I think it's, it's always going to be a struggle there because you have Hollywood and you have all of these other industries that, you know, can easily dominate and people can other, you know, or go to the beach. Like people have all these other options of what they can do in LA instead of going to USC. So, but I do think when it takes over, you're still going to have that same sentiment and same feeling. Um, and so I, I think that's part of it. And the, the point on Nebraska, if they can ever get back to that is, is a fair one because you're talking about a place that built itself in a way that isn't how you win in college football anymore. Like you can't no. just build off of the backs of hardworking former walk-ons like that. That's not going to win at the highest level. So very interested to see. I mean, now we're going to see another coach try and another iteration of all of this. 
and them try to do that and to be back to being relevant at the highest levels of college football. And, and speaking of that, we, we've seen so many upsets in, in the NCAA tournament. When you're thinking about like an expanded college football playoff, I wonder not just, you know, what it's going to look like. Like, are you going to see the kinds of upsets we see in the basketball tournament where we've now had 16 seeds beat one seeds twice? Uh, you've had the third straight year with a 15 seed make the sweet 16. Even the women's side, which this is an underrated uh, or an under-discussed point, but like two number one seeds lost this weekend and they lose on their own home court. So that is really hard to do what uh, Miami did to, to Indiana and then what Ole Miss did to Stanford. Really, really hard to do. So two ones on the women's side missed the sweet 16 for the first time since 1998. Now, we have all done the mocks, right, Chris? Like, we know what the bracket would look like and what it would have looked like over the last nine years with a 12-team playoff. We know that the expansion is mostly here, and it's mostly about access and getting there and being part of something and then watching it play out on the field and not just being told that you're not good enough. But the question I have for you is, are we going to see the upsets? Are you going to see the actual parity that we see in the basketball tournament on the men's side and the women's side now as well, just based on having more teams included year in and year out and what that's going to mean for different programs throughout the country. Right. It's in, it, basically the idea is like, we have Cinderella runs in college basketball. We've got several of them this year. You've got the Ivy league, you've got conference USA with teams in, in the sweet 16. Can that happen in football? And I think you can, I think you could see a group of five team, make the semifinals, maybe win two games uh, to get to the semifinals, not win a national championship. I mean, none of these Cinderella teams ever end up winning the national championship. Butler didn't do it. Uh, VCU didn't do it. George Mason didn't do it, but they made it to the final four. You get a couple of wins and you get somewhere. And I think that could happen. You know, we, like the group of five team, when they're in that New Year's six bowl, they usually play really well. Tulane beat USC, UCF beat Auburn almost beat Joe Burrow's LSU Cincinnati should have beat Georgia a couple of years ago. Uh, so like it can be done as long as you're missing Alabama or Georgia or whoever those like top one or two teams are most years, you can make a run. One thing that will make this different though, is that those top four seeds will have a buy. So I think you could almost see more upsets in the second round. You could see a, uh, a team that gets a buy maybe losing in those quarterfinals because the teams that didn't get the, you know, a Georgia that didn't win the sec is playing in the first round, you know, you, so you could see that wouldn't be a Cinderella run. So it's a little bit different setup of a tournament, but I think about like Utah last year with the way they were playing at the end of the season, I think about USC in 2016 when they were started one and three and finished number three and won the Rose Bowl. Like you've had teams that are really hot late in the year that we kind of ignore for most of the year because they can't make the 14 playoff. And you're going to have teams that are hot at the end of the season that are going to make, runs and win one or two games unexpectedly. Yeah, for sure. And it's interesting. Uh, some of the, some of my pals over at Sirius XM, including Ben Hartsock, who are like anti college football playoff expansion. They love the first weekend of the NCAA tournament. And part of it's like, it's chaotic and you don't know what's going to happen. It's unpredictable. And then you typically most years this year, parts of the bracket are a little weird, but you do end up with like, some of the teams that we think are the best teams in the country and are playing well at the end, right? Like that's what people always say. The goal is all the upsets the first weekend and then blue bloods at the end. Yes. And that's like the dream for, 
you know, TV folks and, and everyone because, you know, you're more invested and you'll, you'll watch the games at the end and maybe it'll be higher quality. So I get that argument. But I think you could have a similar dynamic actually taking place with the CFP too, especially with the buys for the first four, for the top four seeds, because we've seen such a drop off from, let's say, like seeds two to three or three to four, whatever it is. And now you'll be taking those games out again, like you said, avoiding the Alabamas and the Georgias or whoever is like head and shoulders above others and getting teams that are probably going to be a lot closer between five and 12 in that first round. So I think you could certainly still have that and you may still end up with the same Alabamas and Georgias and Ohio States and those teams at the end. But the whole point we both have made this is that it'll be more interesting along the way. And that's how the NCAA tournament goes. The the basketball tournament does not always crown the best team in college basketball as the national champion. I think college football will because the depth and the talent and all of those things will build throughout a couple of additional games in an expanded playoff. But you will still have that potential for some interesting results in the early round, I think, at least. And, 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 and you have an opportunity to tell a story in the playoff. You don't really have that in, in the current uh, four-team playoff. It's just it's three games. And you th- like I always point to this. Last year, the Elite Eight, you know which game got the best TV ratings? It was the North Carolina-St. Peter's game. Fairleigh Dickerson beating Purdue this year was the highest rated first round game on cable on the Turner networks since, since this whole, since this whole setup started in 2011, America likes tuning in for the underdogs. So if you have a Boise state make the playoff as a G five team and they win a game and then they're playing a Clemson or something like that in the second round, people are going to tune in for that. I I really think you're going to have an opportunity for all of us to, there were a lot of fans to galvanize behind an underdog the way you used to when Boise State played Oklahoma or something like that. But in this current playoff system, now they're playing for something. I think you could see more of them. Yeah, I, I agree. And and that's why we put this in the happy hour. I mean, this is something that we're excited to see that piece replicated a little bit in some way in an expanded college football playoff. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a... Mm, real POS. You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. 
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Okay, it's time to switch gears, go on the rocks. It's time to talk it out. There is friction somewhere, some, some, there is friction somewhere in this sport, and we are here to help work through it. This week's Rocky Relationship will start with Jack Swarbrick, and Father Jenkins op-ed in the New York Times. Um, Chris mentioned it earlier in, in the Power Five, but the idea is pushing back on those who say athletes should get paid, like, period. Um, so, Chris, I'll, I'll let you start here. What is the argument for, argument against? What creates the, the, the friction here? I think I was most surprised reading the op-ed that it was a lot of the same phrases and arguments and points made that have been made for decades about why college football is or college sports are different. Like they're like play in other sports, players can go to a minor league and make money or they can come to college and make something even more valuable, a degree. And it's like, why can't it be both? Like, like it, they're really trying to separate these things that I, I don't think you necessarily have to. And Andy Staples wrote a really good column in reaction to this on Thursday, which is to say that a lot of these claims, like there's a claim in the op-ed that, you know, if, if, if schools have to pay players, it's going to lead to sports being cut because suddenly they can't fund these schools. Well, Notre Dame hasn't added a sport since the late 1970s, despite revenue going through the roof. So if you could pay for these sports when you didn't have this money, you can pay for the sports if you have to give some of the money elsewhere, schools at these, these big money schools are not cutting sports because of money. They're cutting sports because they want to. They want to real, reallocate that money into something else like football. Compare the Big Ten in, in, in the Pac-12, the number of sports that they have at those schools to the SEC. And you can just you can see it. There's just different approaches to things. And that's fine. Schools can do what, what they want. You just don't need to blame the football players getting money for the reason you want to cut swimming or something like that. Over the last 25 years, the money in, in, especially in football, has gone up so exponentially, and very little of that has gone directly to the players. Yes, they're getting nutrition. Yes, they're getting a better weight room. Yes, they're getting all these things. But the first, I think I mentioned this last week or a couple weeks ago on the pod, but the first $1 million assistant coach in college football was Monty Kiffin in 2009 at Tennessee. By 2021, there were 34 $1 million assistant head co assistant coaches, many of which making $2 million. 
coaching contracts are going through the roof. You got all kinds of head coaches making more than $9 million. You've got athletic departments that have exploded in staff. You've got brand new facilities because all this money that came in and they had to spend it somewhere and they couldn't give it to the players. And so this notion that you can't, you can't uh, pay the players because of what else is going on. No, you're just going to have to reallocate the way you've been spending your money. And none of these places want to do that. Right. And that's the crux of all of this. And it also leads to the point where you have random things regulated in an attempt to, you know, say that there's like some sort of a playing and even playing field, but really it's to cut costs and to save people from like part of the reason you don't have there, there has been pushback over the last year about like unlimited coaching staff sizes is because, well, then the school is going to have to decide how many softball assistant coaches they want, baseball assistant coaches. And they're going to have to say like, no, we're going to allow football to have X. And then we're going to cap you at Y. And like, you are going to have to make the decisions about where you're spending the money and devoting the resources. And like, it already happens right to some extent, but when you have, um, you know, restrictions on the amount of staffing per sport, when you have unlimited or sorry, you have roster limits, um, and scholarship limits. So then you can, okay, well, we maxed out on, you know, the number of football players we're bringing in. So, you know, we can devote resources and energy to, to this other thing. Those are guardrails as everyone loves to use as their favorite phrase around NCAA stuff, but they're also, they also stop people from spending more on the sports that bring in the most money. Right. So then you are forced to devote resources to other places. That's where like people want to be capped in some of these areas because otherwise they're going to have to make hard decisions or tell sports and athletes and coaches that they're not going to prioritize them. Like they're going to have to have those conversations that becomes very difficult um, and then obviously there's title nine implications about, you know, the, the offerings and what's available as well, but it's, it's, it's the paradox that so many of these campus leaders find themselves in, even the ones who are more willing to engage with the idea that like athletes may be employees here and a court may decide it right. And that they may decide it in different ways. Like the Johnson case is about like hourly wages. Then you have the house case, which is a little bit more about like revenue sharing and, and, and things of that nature. But this is kind of what the NCAA stance is. And, and they go and hire Charlie Baker and they're going to spend a lot of time in Washington, but they're asking essentially for protection around like student athlete status. They just don't want people yes. to make them make them employees. And that's the argument. And that's really like, you can sense the paradox and some of these contradictory ideas in this op-ed alone, but that is, where people are. A lot of people who work in college sports are holding ideas that actually kind of contradict at sometimes. That's how they believe. That's how they feel about these things. I thought Mick Cronin, the UCLA men's basketball coach, had a really interesting comment this week in Las Vegas before the Sweet 16. He said that, you know, the argument of, well, you know, we we should do something because it's the way we've always done something is the thing you hear from dying companies from places that aren't willing to change or evolve. And he basically was like, Charlie Baker, NCAA, listen to this. Like, you cannot just say that. Like, you need to be thinking. You need to be thinking about the future. You need to be creative. And that's kind of what Andy's point is too, right? That the people directly involved in this could have the opportunity and have had the opportunity to come up with something new. 
to the people, evolve, the people, to adapt. The people who make millions of dollars should be the ones who make these decisions. It's also praying for help from Congress or wherever, right? And then being concerned about the specific things that they want to change, right? Like you're giving up that power if you have other outside entities decide these things for you. So we've talked about this a lot, Chris, you and I have over the last couple of years. But again, I just keep coming back to the idea that like some of these beliefs are are paradoxes, but people still believe them. And that's why you have pushback to an op-ed like this or or opinions like this because other people are just getting tired of hearing these arguments that do ultimately boil down to it's been a good thing for a long time so we should keep it the way that it's been set up to your point about being contradictory Swarbrick or both of them say in the op-ed regular students can make nil money they can sell their name image and likeness and make money regular students can so therefore we believe that athletes should be able to but regular students can also get paid by the school (laughs) when i was at michigan state my wife worked in the business school and got paid and she went on to get her degree like at the school like you you that's where it's like it's it's partly one but but not but not for the other college sports ultimately put itself in this mess by the way it handled the last two decades fighting for so long against amateurism, against NIL and the Edo Banning case and all these things, all the while the coaches, the administrators, the facilities, more and more and more millions of dollars came in. You got conferences signing billion dollar television deals. And, and, and so now you're in the spot where it's so uneven in terms of what players are getting and what everybody else is getting, that it's impossible to ignore. And a, a medical trust is a great idea. Some of the things that Schwarberg suggested are good ideas, but it's like, it's too little too late at this point to convince the right people to be on your side. Yeah. And as everyone working in the space will tell you, like they've just totally lost the PR battle on explaining what is included in the experience for like these high end power five athletes about the resources that they get for academics and for nutrition and all of this other stuff. Right. And I don't know that that would necessarily sway a lot of people who believe that athletes deserve direct compensation, but that piece and like the value and all the other stuff that comes with a scholarship and a college education as degrees have become more expensive to obtain Mm -hmm. is, is, it, it's 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 part of it, right? It's it's just like it's it's missed in their messaging, and it's been missing for ten years now. And so that is too late to change because you've already convinced people that they deserve direct compensation. And you know, it, it's just it's it's all part of the same conversation and the the arguments around and for and messaging and all these pieces that that they've just been behind on and and reactive on instead of proactive. So it's just where it is. Um, I, I, you know, the idea of like creating minor leagues, like the NFL should create a minor league system. Why would the NC, why would the NFL do that when they already have one for free in college football, right? Like it exists in certain sports because it was built a certain way, but right now the NFL benefits greatly from college football set up the way that it does. And if college football, schools have to pay their athletes directly that doesn't impact the nfl yes and and to your point yes college sports do provide a lot of good things for athletes and it's not just basketball and football players 
graduation rates are always going up. Grade point averages are always going up. A lot of a lot of players who maybe wouldn't be in college otherwise have been given this opportunity, and that's good. That's important. But at the same time, you also have players who are steered toward majors that are just meant to get them to graduate, and not necessarily be prepared for what what comes after. So it, it, it's a mixed bag of things. Yes, they lost a PR battle, and now they have to to, to fix it. But this op-ed just largely felt like something that would have been written 10 years ago. It did. Um, and Chris, I will get to this next week. I know you've got an update on kind of uh, some of the staffing and some of the NCAA minutia that's, that's mingling its way through, but want to make sure we get in a last call before we go. This is the point in the show where we do a cheers or a jeers. We celebrate something, something that we would, would get a round of drinks and have our last drink of the night too. So if you want to get something off your chest, feel free. If you want to celebrate something one more time, feel free. And I will let you go first. Take it away, Chris. I'm going to start with a cheers for the retirement slash not retirement of Dale Lindsay, the head coach at the university of San Diego. Uh, he, uh, he's 80 years old. He's gone 80 and 30 in 11 years. He won seven conference championships. He tied an FCS record with 39 straight conference wins back in 2021. Uh, on Tuesday, the University of San Diego announced that he had retired. Well, the next day, Lindsay told the San Diego Union Tribune that that was not the case. He said, quote, I didn't bleeping retire. I wasn't planning on retiring. I know chronologically how old I am, but I don't function like an 80-year-old man. He didn't want to he didn't want to retire. He was basically shown the door and forced out. Uh, he wants to keep coaching. I don't know if he will, but he also said something in this, in this interview with the paper I found really insightful into the thought process of a lot of coaches, which is you may wonder, hey, why is that 80-year-old guy still coaching college football? Go like live on the beach or something like that. And the reality is a lot of coaches feel like the second they stop coaching that they're going to die like Bear Bryant did and Joe Paterno did. And like, literally, this is what Lindsay told the paper, quote, if you just sit at home, you become a vegetable and vegetables die sooner or later. I've seen too many coaches work their ass off for 40 years, think they're going to go off to some golden parachute retirement. They're, then they're dead in six months. I don't want to be one of those, nor do I intend to be one. So I don't know if Dale Lindsay is going to keep coaching or not. He is quite the character. I've interviewed him a number of times. Again, very successful coach. They went five and five this year, by the way, which was their worst record in like 13 years. That was probably a factor in this as well. Uh, but uh, cheers to the retirement slash not retirement of Dale Lindsay, one of the more interesting characters in college football. I like how it was a very complicated exit as well, um, because I, I think it's a cheers and a jeers at the same time, right? When you're you're kind of pushed out, but you're not ready to go and you're not sure what's next. Um, and he's not the only coach who has gone through something like that. Okay. My last call is something we have talked about on this show because we both went to schools that had success in, in men's basketball and football at the same time. So it's a cheers to the sweet 16 schools that have both the fact that we have Alabama as the number one overall seed and they also have been a dynasty in football. Like the fact that they invested and that they built up a basketball program. We've seen that in a number of sec schools. Auburn's done that. Tennessee is also in the sweet 16. I just think it's cool. It's cool when you see success in other sports, when you would traditionally say a school is a football school. Um, so you see it with Alabama. I mean, one of the, the best games I think is going to be in the sweet 16. And I apologize if you're listening to this after the game is played and it's not a good game. I take back the opinion. <laughs> 
Kansas State, Michigan State, like that's a game I would love to see a football game to go with it, yes. right? Like I would, it would be enjoyable. And it's cool. You know, there's so many good storylines around that and Tom Izzo and his success in March and, and, and how many final fours he's gone to Jerome Tang and everything he's done year one um, after coming from Baylor to K state. But I just think it's cool when there are places that a, obviously like if you haven't had success in a long time and you have success, I love that the breakthrough moments, but I also love when it's in other sports. When you see a program get good in multiple things. I mean, it was so weird. And I don't know if this has ever happened. I've not looked this up, but Miami beat Indiana to get to the sweet 16 in men's basketball. And then the day later they did it in women's basketball, same teams. That was actually an upset on the home court in Bloomington, but like, that's so weird. And so awesome for Miami to have both of these teams at this level, at this stage, at the same time. So I just love that because I know how much it means to athletes when their peers and their friends and their other sports find success. But I just think it's really cool for places that have traditionally been football schools when they get good in basketball or traditionally basketball schools, they get good in football. Um, like it's part of the reason I loved Duke and Kansas last year and, and the turnarounds that they had. It's just fun. It's, it's, you know, a lot of people like to make jokes and take, cheap shots, things like that, right? Like, oh, they're basketball school, or football school. But there are places that have tradition, have history. And when another program breaks through, it is just undeniably cool and good for that fan base and exciting and it changes behaviors. And I just want to cheers to that. To, to, to the point, actually, right there about changing behaviors. That was a really interesting point. We'll wrap up here in a second. But I want to point this out because football and basketball together, I couldn't help but think of Kentucky and Mark Stoops kind of sniping at whether or not Kentucky's a football school or trying to get more money for the program and all these kinds of things. That was interesting. You you have Auburn and Alabama paying up big to keep their basketball coaches at places that are football schools. And on the flip side, Penn State just lost its basketball coach to Notre Dame after it had its first NCAA tournament win in over a decade. And Mika Shrewsbury has gone over to Notre Dame. And lack of support for the basketball program so slash lack of fan interest uh, was was not there was certainly a factor in that so it's interesting the places that are known for another sport get good in another one and whether or not the coach sticks around whether or not the school commits to it it's really interesting dynamic and it's not the same everywhere that is a very fair point as well um or like at penn state you embrace wrestling as a fan but maybe yes. you don't embrace basketball like it's just a totally different place so we'll wrap up this edition of power hour on that note again we will have basketball shows through the final four so we'll have them next week and we will also have our college football content as well for chris vanini i'm nicole auerbach this is power hour thanks for listening mm -hmm.